Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I am here in this beautiful and familiar space on this kickoff Sunday and wishing you were here with me. I know that someday we all will be back in this space together. It will be a good day, but until then, I'm glad we can be together through the gift of the internet. On this kickoff Sunday, given everything that is going on in the world, I felt drawn to preach on a text that talks about differences, about the differences that separate human beings and what we should do given the differences between us. Now I'm going to use a text from the Apostle Paul to talk this morning, and that feels a little bit ironic to me because I tend to feel like Paul is often a jerk when it comes to the subject of difference. He often exacerbates differences between people. But people do mature. And in Paul's last letter, the letter to the Romans, it is quite beautiful when it comes to the subject of difference. Paul seems less interested in this letter uh, in quarrels and much more interested in our commonality. God, Paul says, makes a space for grace in our lives. God loves us, and because of God's love for us, we are enabled to love one another even and in spite of our differences. Now, we're going to jump into this letter in the middle, so I want to say a few uh, more words before we start reading about what's going on in the letter and the passage that we're reading. You're going to hear as Paul is trying to negotiate a conflict uh, in the community in Rome. There are two conflicts, actually. The first one he's talking about is a fight about whether it's okay to eat certain kinds of meat or not. And then the second fight is about whether the folks in that Christian community should be uh, observing certain religious days or not. Now, there are two camps uh, in, this, in these conflicts. One is called the strong, and the other is called the weak. In this case, the weak are those folks who hold to a stricter observance of the rules. The weak are the people who are uh, fastidiously avoiding meat. They are eating a vegetarian diet, and they are observing these extra religious days. They're called weak in this case because their faith seems to need these extra rules in order to stay on track. Now, the strong in this example are those who feel that they can keep the faith without having to adhere to these specific rules. If you have ever been a part of a religious community for like 15 minutes, you know that this type of conflict uh, exists in all kinds of religious communities between the strict judgmental rule keepers over here and the lax and sometimes contemptuous free thinkers over here. With that in mind, I want to invite you to read with me. This is Romans chapter 14. We begin in the first verse. Paul says, Welcome 
those who are weak in faith. But don't welcome them only so that you can quarrel over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak will eat only vegetables. Those who eat meat must not despise those who abstain from meat, and those who abstain from meat must not pass judgment on those who eat it. For God has welcomed all of them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that Christ might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. That is the word of God. It is for you, the people of God. Together we say, thanks be to God. Will everyone raise your hand if you've got no idea about the kind of conflict Paul is describing here? I'm looking out there and I'm not seeing too many hands raised. I think you identify with the conflict that he's describing. There's a group over here and they are advocating for strict adherence to certain rules. For these good folks, the rules are truly helpful. They draw their rules in thick black markers. The lines are super clear. Don't stray outside the line and you will be safe. Too much freedom, they think, is dangerous. And and maybe they are a bit weak in their faith. But maybe that's because they've been confused or hurt by the tyrannical chaos of a life with too few rules. This group finds rules to be a gift and a comfort and even a blessing. And then there's another group over here, and they're saying at the same time, chill out, relax on all of these rules. Too many rules prevents us from being flexible and being creative. Freedom is not the enemy of faith, this group says. Freedom's the definition of our faith. And indeed, the faith of this group may be strong, but, but in their strength, this group can become smug, and superior, and even more than a little contemptuous of the rule followers. 
Every day, the conflict between these two groups grows. Judgment flies back and forth between them. Even though they share a lot in common with each other, in time, they come to define themselves by the ways that they disagree. They are what the other is not. They are animated by anger and by mutual animosity. They can tell you their differences reflexively. They make their enemies into caricatures. And they might have even forgotten that they hold anything in common at all. It should sound familiar to all of us. Certainly it describes our nation's political divide between conservative and liberal, each each group holding tightly to their own way, angry at the other, no longer able to articulate even the slightest sense of shared values or shared well-being. But it's not just politics that is riven by disagreement over differences. Religion is notorious for this. Making a big deal about differences is the basic story of the Presbyterian church. Sometimes I joke that the the spiritual gift that God gave to Presbyterians is fighting with each other and then indignantly walking away in the belief that when we're free of those people, we can finally form the one true church. What else can explain the existence simultaneously of the PCUSA, the PCA, the EPC, the OPC, the BPC, the CPC, the CPCA, and the ECOP, and I've left out like 15 others for Presbyterians fighting over differences is an art form. Disagreeing over our differences is not an exclusive thing for politicians or for religious people, disagreeing over difference is utterly human. We don't have to know exactly what was going on in the Roman Christian community to identify with the heart of the issues at stake. Human differences are real. They show up any and every time we try and have community with one another. Our perennial question is, what do we make? of our differences. How important are they? Are they trivial? Will we agree to disagree? Or will we go to the mat over our differences? Which which differences should be celebrated as enriching our life? And which differences diminish our common bonds? How much diversity can a community tolerate before that community disintegrates? Those are all great questions, and I have to tell you, I'm not going to be able to answer a single one of them today. But they are questions that I want you to hold in front of you and hold in front of a community anytime you find yourselves in conflict. That conflict could be in your family, it could be in a neighborhood, it could be in a nation. How important are the differences between us? What is at stake in our difference? Those are questions to ask and answer with fear and with trembling. What I want to do today is simply notice the way that Paul, in the middle of his discussion about difference, will switch our focus from the specific 
of the specifics of the conflict at hand to a bigger picture. He will shift the lens to a wider view where differences become less significant in light of the commonalities that we share together. Before we look at what Paul says, though, I want to affirm one more thing, which is that when it comes to conflict and our Christian faith, I want to tell you that conflict is not always a bad thing. Conflict is normal. Conflict is natural. Yes, conflict can be the source of much unnecessary suffering and even harm, but conflict can also be holy. I say this because I I don't want you to be under the false impression that as a Christian, you always have to be looking for the quickest path to reconciliation between people or groups who are in conflict. Yes, our tradition is incredibly rich in advocating for and facilitating reconciliation. Christ reconciles all things, says Colossians. We are disciples who are given the ministry of reconciliation, says 2 Corinthians. But righteous conflict, righteous conflict has a place in the unfolding of God's will in our world. I remember when I was just at the stage of becoming an adult, wondering if I should affiliate with this denomination, the PCUSA, in which I was raised as a child. It was at that very same time that our General Assembly was passing church laws that would forbid pastors and elders from being ordained if they publicly acknowledged that they were gay, lesbian, transgender, or bisexual. I was stunned that our denomination would and could do this. I had grown up in a pretty liberal home, in pretty liberal churches, and I couldn't understand how how you could baptize someone uh, into the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, into the church, and then tell that same person that their spirit-given gifts were not welcome to be used in service of the church. The exclusion of LGBTQ Christians was a deal breaker for me, so I decided to fight it. I was quickly enlisted in the fight that embroiled our denomination for two decades or more. It was ugly and it was hard. In the end, our denomination, the PCUSA, lost hundreds of thousands of conservative members. We are smaller and poorer and less influential because we chose to welcome LGBTQ Christians to be full disciples of Jesus and members of our congregations. And yet, to me, that conflict was worth it. The full participation of LGBTQ folk in the life of Christ's church was not a side issue for me. It's not something about which we could agree to disagree. It still does today strike me as as the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us are welcome into the body of Christ. None of us deserve that welcome, but it's given to all of us. That, to me, is gospel. Now, I have conservative friends, even to this day, who also look back at the conflict and and their own separation from our tradition and don't regret it. In the end, I'm not sure anyone, quote-unquote, won that conflict. It merely revealed that 
that we needed to be apart from one another in order to continue to be faithful in this moment. Now, as our nation is struggling again about whether or not to face the ugliness of our racist past and our racist present, a number of white Christians are tempted to call for an end to the conflict, to call for reconciliation, social upheaval. Any kind of upheaval uh, is profoundly uncomfortable. We also have to realize that it may be necessary. This conflict that we're experiencing socially may be the way to shock us into an awareness of the unacceptable tolerance we have for violence against black bodies in our culture. I don't think it's clear to me at all that this social division, that the conflict that we're all holding right now is going away anytime soon. It's not clear that the portion of America that denies that institutional racism is real and those who know it is real and that it must stop, it's not clear that that, that we can continue to abide together in peace without experiencing upheaval. I would caution all Christians if they're calling right now for an end to the unrest, that they may be calling for a false peace. True peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of justice. And surely we are called to justice. So what's the good news, right? What then is the good news? Where's the wisdom in this text? Is it that that we're always going to be fighting about this, that, and the other, and we should just get used to conflict as being a perennial part of our life? Well, let's come back to what Paul says. Paul may or may not have a dog in the particular fights over eating meat and observing certain days as religious. He does not tip his hand. Instead, what he does is he reminds the community that God has welcomed them all. God has welcomed, he says, both the weak and the strong. That is the radical message of this passage, and it never fails to shock me and even offend me. It's not that God doesn't care about these two opinions. It's not that what they're fighting about doesn't matter. It's not even that they're just called to tolerate each other in the middle of the conflict. Paul insists, and the language is very clear, Paul insists that each side remember that God has welcomed the individuals who hold the opposite opinion. God welcomes that person, the one you're thinking of right now that you can't stand because they hold that belief that you find so deeply objectionable, God has welcomed that person. Paul Paul is shifting our focus away from the conflict, away from the specifics, from the particulars, and toward the person as they are in the sight of God. That person whom you disagree with has been welcomed by God. Eugene Peterson, in his wonderful message translation, he often translates these passages so beautifully so that the meaning bubbles up. He he renders this passage in this way. He says, since both are guests at Christ's table, wouldn't it be terribly rude if each fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited both to the table. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list? 
or interfering with God's welcome? I hear this today as an invitation to me to never let myself conflate a person and their perspective. You and I might disagree terribly about something, and that thing could be trivial, right? Churches have had knockdown, drag-out fights over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. Or the thing that we're arguing about could be absolutely essential, like whether God thinks it's okay to be gay or whether justice is due to black Americans, or whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. We are allowed to disagree, and we will. But I hear this text telling me and telling all of us that we are never allowed to let our disagreements slip into dehumanization. The person with whom you disagree is a guest at Christ's table. They are there just like you by the grace of God. They are an image bearer of God just like you are. While we may disagree over matters of conscience, we must agree that every one of us is sacred and that we are bound by God to honor each other. This means that we are called to know each other. We're called to understand We're called to lean into our shared sacredness, even when it's hard, and never to dismiss or diminish it. In closing, I thought it might be important to observe that a lot of you who are hearing this sermon We'll note that this text is the one that we use when we send an email out to all of you announcing the death of one of our members. You know by now what it means when you see the subject line in your inbox saying, we do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Our common humanity is never so plain as it is at funerals. It's one of the most important spiritual practices that we have to bear witness at one another's funerals. When we do that, we sit together and and we bear witness to the fullness of human life, sometimes to the emptiness of our human life. We bear witness to the wonder and the mystery of our departed friend's existence. We are reminded of what courage it takes to simply live in this world. And we are reminded again that in the end, all of our striving and all of our disagreements turn to dust. All of us walk this perilous journey of life. Each of us has to navigate it in the best way that we can. We will always, 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 for as long as we live, disagree about how it is that we should best live. But even in our disagreements, these truths remain. Life is better. Life is richer. Life is easier Life is certainly more full of love when we remember that we are all 
guests at Christ's table. All of us are here by grace. Not one of us lives to ourselves. Not one of us dies to ourselves. All of us belong to God. So by all means, at all times, even in our disagreements, let us belong to one another. Let the people say, Amen.